All right. So um, I'd, I'll begin before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Uh, obviously, it's an Easter message because it's Easter. Uh, but I want to just kind of share with you the context of how this message came about and what the Lord put in my heart. It's been somewhat of a, a hectic week. Uh, Thursday, we had our Seder. I went to a Seder on Monday. Uh, we had Wednesday service, Thursday Seder. Uh, Friday morning, we had our men's discipleship. I'd, I got up fairly early for that because um, I didn't have a lot of time the, the days before to prepare. And, and then I uh, went through uh, Friday. My son, um, who turned 18, one of the things he wanted to do for his birthday was jump out of an, a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> Insane. So we did that Friday, and, and then we had a group of people over to the house. We had family visit, and it was late. And I was thinking, oh, thank God, I've got Saturday to rest, you know, because I'll get ready for Sunday. And I was, because it really burned in the candle. <clears throat> I'd been busy, and I was tired. And uh, somebody reminded me that I, I had a, a funeral in Phoenix on Saturday. So I, I pulled it up, and I realized it's an early morning flight. I have to get up at 5 to be there by, it's just like no rest, you know. And so... I, I went and caught a couple winks of sleep, got up, um, headed to Phoenix, and I, I officiated the funeral uh, for this woman, uh, her memorial service, and I had gotten to know the family um, <clears throat> through the church, but I had officiated her son's uh, service before I'd officiated hers. And so uh, in, in the last two years, I've gone back to Phoenix for, for these funerals, and they've both been really sad. On each occasion, I've gotten to know the family in a deeper capacity. And so I got, to, I got to Phoenix Saturday, and I'm with the family, and they wanted me to stay for dinner. And it was a lengthy stay, and I'm with the family through the course of the day, and I'm looking at my watch thinking, you know, i got to get on this. And uh, as I started to hear the stories, my heart was touched, and, and I started to really grow deeper into the lives of, of each of the family members. And I was sitting with some of the younger members of the family, And the memorial service had already concluded, and we were all at the house. And one of the younger members of the family asked me, he said, how many, how many funerals have you done as a pastor? And I said, I, I lost count a long time ago. Sadly, I, I, too many to count. And, he, and I said, but I, I, I do remember one that I'll never forget. And, and they were intrigued, and all the young people gathered around. They said, well, what was that one? I said, it was the very first funeral I ever officiated. And they're, wow, what was so special about it? And I said, well, the person whose funeral was a 30-year-old woman, and I at the time was 30 years old. And, um, and it, it was, I was low man on the totem pole on staff, so they had assigned it to me. And I remember showing up at the funeral home, and I'd brought a young man with me to play guitar. <clears throat> so it was myself and the young man. And when I walked into the, the sanctuary or the mortuary, There was an older woman and a 12-year-old girl, and then the body. And as I started to get to know what was taking place and trying to assess the situation, uh, this, this, this older woman, it was her daughter who had passed, and the 12-year-old girl was the daughter of the woman who had passed, and the 12-year-old had never met her mother. And pouring out heartache of, of her life and how drug addiction and broken relationships and And as I, it was an open casket, I looked at the, the body of the woman, thinking myself to be 30, what does a 30-year-old look like when they go to step into eternity? And, and she looked 65. She just looked like she had had a very, very hard life. And I had shared with them, 
as these young people were gathered around, because there's a verse I typically use when I'm, currently it's become very dear to me, so I use it often. And many of you have heard me share this verse before, and it's out of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, that says, a good name is like a precious fragrance, but better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth. And they said, yeah, you use that for grandma. I said, right. I said, the amazing thing is Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, equated a name with, of the human senses. He, he used the sense that is most used or, or most associated with recollection, which is the olfactory sense, the sense of smell. It's the number one sense of the human body for memory recollection. And so he equates a name with, that, with a fragrance. And I said, it's, it's very fitting because when Solomon said, a good name is like a precious fragrance, but better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth is the reality is you're all born with a name. I'm telling this to the young people. I said, you're all born with a name, but we only know if your name is a beautiful fragrance or a stench at the end of your life. And I said, think about it. Nobody ever names their children Adolf Hitler or Judas. And they all laughed. And all of a sudden the Lord right there spoke to me. That's what you're going to speak on. Judas. And I thought about that, you know, other than a heavy metal band, we really don't use that name very often. And, and, and the Lord gave me the title of the sermon. He just said, the man who missed Easter. And Judas missed Easter. And he was this close to making it, but he missed it. And a fascinating insight. And, and that verse has meant so much to me. In particular, um, when you contrast the funeral of the woman I had done, the very first funeral I had done, there wasn't anyone in the room. Her name was a stench. Even her daughter understood her mother to have been someone who was irrelevant in her life. And, and that stench kept people away. It was the way she lived her life, selfish and self-consumed and destructive in every relationship and isolated and alienated, toxic, and then I would contrast that. I so, told these younger people, I said, uh, I've done funerals where it's standing room only and people are drawn and they're, they're looking through the windows and the doors and the seats are outside. And, and I was thinking, that's what Easter is. We're drawn by the name Jesus Christ. Look at the room. This is a man who, what we're celebrating happened thousands of years ago, yet you're still here. Now, some of you were drawn, others were drug. <clears throat> and may be drugged. I'm, I, I just... I'm, And, and, and we think about this man's life and his fragrance has, has drawn humanity and changed the world as we know it. And I, I, I used this verse and I was telling these young people, I said, I, uh, the, the verse really came to meaning for me uh, when my son Michael went from age uh, 12 to 13 and I took him on a walkabout where you leave a boy and you come back a man. And, and, and it was a very critical time. Um, it was when I was running for the state assembly and it was in October and, and the election day was the very first Tuesday in November. So this was crunch time and I had done 150 coffees or 650 volunteers. My schedule was, was, you know, blocked in 15 minute intervals and I was just swamped and to take time out of this portion of the campaign to go and celebrate my son's birthday was critical to the campaign, but very necessary to the life of my son and me as a person. And I, I walked away. And the campaign understood, and everybody's still making phone calls and on and on and on. And the campaign headquarters was over here, and it was packed full of people. And they had life-size cutouts of me, and everybody was wearing my shirts, and they all had bumpers. I was, I was sick of myself. <laughs> and we went to, the, went to the gravesite, and when we were up at the gravesite, I said, son, every journey in life begins with the end in mind. 
I said, so I want you to observe and see what you see here. And Michael was very observant. He said, well, there's tombstones. I said, yeah. I said, what do you see on the tombstone? He says, name, year of the birth, year of death, dash in between. Yep. Some of them have little phrases or quotes on the tombstones or the, or the plaques. And I said, what else do you observe, son? He said, there's nobody here. I said, exactly. It's like the lilies of the field. They're, they're here and they fade and they die and they'll be remembered no more. I said, you, you can't even name uh, a, a pharaoh for, for any of the, the pyramids. And, and they, they tried to be immortal. And we'd be hard-pressed to remember any of their names. And I said, that's, that's life. And the significance of it, son, is a name. The name is to be remembered. And is it a precious fragrance or is it a stench? And that depends on how you live, son. And, and I poured this into him and I, I reflected that you were given a name, Michael Thomas McCoy. And what that name will mean to the world is dependent on how you live, whether it's a fragrance or a stench. And, and the way you make it a fragrance is you live for others because the Bible says we are the fragrance of Christ. To one, we're the aroma of life. To others, the aroma of death. To those that don't want anything to do with God, we are a reminder and they want us as far away from them as possible. To those who are longing for something more, that fragrance draws them. They want to live. They want to be reconciled to God. They want a relationship. They want to be back in the fold. They want to be made whole. They want life to have meaning and purpose. And, and I said, son, that's, that's your purpose in life. And as we came down the mountain, um, I gave him a gift. And it was probably the most valuable possession I had. It was my autograph from Ronald Reagan. I met him, I think, when I was 11. He wrote Best Wishes, Robert McCoy, Ronald Reagan. It's worth like three grand. And <laughs> I'm just a generous dad. I gave him this plaque. We came down. We go into the campaign headquarters. Everyone cheers when the candidate comes in. They're all working feverishly on my behalf. I walk in. They're all cheering. I say, hey, everybody, it's Michael's birthday. They all kindly cheer for Michael. And then I hold up the plaque. I said, for his birthday, I gave him the autograph of Ronald Reagan. There was a, whoa. And I put that down, and I, I noticed everybody put the phones down. They put their walk pads down. The room got quiet. Everyone gathered around the table, and they started to look at this plaque. And it, it couldn't have been a better illustration. I turned to my son. I go, Michael. I want to show you the power of Ecclesiastes 7.1. I said, a dead man's autograph is more valuable than a living candidate's presence. Isn't that powerful? And you're drawn by a name, Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. His name brings hope. His name brings life. His name is a name of forgiveness. His name is a name of grace. And yet one man missed Easter, and his name is a stench. And it's a tragic, tragic picture. And, and as we, we saw this, we see in, in the reading today his life, and we'll see how he missed Easter. You see, in Matthew 27, uh, Judas, this occurred before Luke 24, all the events that you read in Matthew 27 happened before Luke 24. So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to begin in Luke 24. No, we're going to do Matthew 27. Curveball. Matthew 27, verse 3. Then Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, seeing that he had been condemned that Jesus had been condemned was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. 
Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now go over to Luke 24, please. And verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Sunday, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them, but Peter arose, and he ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So that's the passage. That's Easter, and that's Judas. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us into all truth? And God, I thank you that as we see the contrast between the name Jesus Christ and the name Judas, we're all aware that our own name has a significance, whether it's a fragrance or a stench. But Lord, the power of that comes in the ability to forgive and be forgiven, and to be reconciled to the God of life. And what Judas missed on Easter, those present in the hearing of my voice, can receive what Judas missed, forgiveness. And so, Lord, please, I pray that you'd minister to each and every heart according to your riches in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, relax. Take a load off. I was cracking up at the uh, United comment uh, that this is Southwest Airlines, not United. I, uh, United. I saw this meme that said, Southwest Airlines, we beat the competition, not the passengers. <laughs> <laughs> And for those of you who work with United, uh, my apologies. It's still funny. The man who missed Easter. Um, here we go with Judas. This is, this is a name that's synonymous with betrayal, right? It's a name that's synonymous with betrayal. And, and as we, we reflect on the stench of a name that is synonymous with betrayal, people don't really like what Judas did. He betrayed the Son of God. And he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, and he did it in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss on his cheek. Even when Jesus said, friend, why have you come? He still did it. Jesus even told him he'd do it, gave him an opportunity to repent from doing it, but Judas still followed through with it. And, and as a result of what he's done, his name has gone down through the ages as one where nobody wants to be a part of it. I mean, we really, I've traveled many countries throughout the world. I've never seen um, a, a church called uh, St. Judas Church. And they don't exist. There isn't a St. Judas Church. There's a St. Jude's, right, in our own town. Fascinatingly enough, St. Jude's, uh, Jude was Jesus' uh, younger brother. And uh, he's the one who wrote the book of Jude. And the name Jude is a diminutive form of Judas, and he wanted people to read it, so he couldn't say his full name, Judas. So he called himself Jude, so people would read it. It, it, it. Let me give you an equivalent. We have first and second Peter. It would be like calling it first and second Pete. We have first, second, and third John in the gospel according to John. 
And we, you know, John F. Kennedy, what was his nickname? Jack. Jack. So we'd go the gospel according to Jack. Uh, first, and, first, second, and third Jack. Uh, so concerned in the early seasons of the church that the half-brother of Jesus didn't even want his name to be equated with Judas, that he called himself Jude. And even the epistle, which means letter, written by him was called the epistle of Jude. And he didn't want to be identified with Judas Iscariot. I mean, would anybody? It'd be an awful connection. But who is this Judas? Who is this guy? There's not a lot written about him. Some of the things uh, that we do know I've written down. Uh, His father was Simon. His surname was Iscariot, Judas Iscariot. It was probably a combination of two Hebrew words. If you look at Iscariot, it's a combination of probably two Hebrew words, ish and karyot, which means um, man of karyot, a man who's come from karyot. And so we know the location where he's from. We discover when we read the scriptures that he was a treasurer. He kept the the money bag for the disciples. He was a money guy. Um, He did that for the 12th. We also know that he was a thief, as we've read through the text, because he was stealing from the money bag. Um, of that, that, that same treasure. He was taking money out of it. But I, I guess what would compel a man like this uh, to sentence his best or closest friend to, to one of the most horrible deaths, or actually probably the most horrible death in human history? What would compel somebody to do this? And, and there's, there's a number of reasons. I, I, as I looked at commentators, there was up to six reasons. I, I'm not going to go through all of them. I just listed a few. One is being from Kerioth, <clears throat> Judas was the only non-Galilean of the disciples. And so he was probably irritated. It'd be like having 11 guys from Newberry Park High School and one guy from Thousand Oaks High School. You know, he got a Lancer with the Panthers and he gets a little irritated and, you know, I, that's the best I could come up with. Huh? <laughs> he, he, he may have realized that as he had, you know, he, he, was, he, he was an insurrectionist and he, he was a nationalist. And so he really wanted to see the Romans removed from Israel. And when he saw that Jesus's, you know, opportunity to accomplish that was, was waning, he probably turned state's evidence against Christ to protect his own skin. It could have been for the money. I mean, 30 pieces of silver uh, was the equivalent of about $12,000 today. And I've always heard that, you know, when someone says it's not about the money, it's about the money right? It's usually about the money. He, he, you know, one of the things that he probably struggled with in relation to the Lord is that, you know, Jesus could see right through everything. And he probably didn't like the fact that every time that Christ looked at him, his, his heart was pierced. You know, he made, he made, Jesus made life difficult to hide. And he could have probably built up an animosity in relation to that. I don't know. There's a, a number of reasons. But we look at Judas Iscariot, we do know him to be a friend, a confidant, a disciple, a treasurer, a traitor. And that's his final title, traitor. He broke the heart of, of Christ when he stepped out and Judas kissed him on the cheek as the Roman soldiers, this fiery snake was descending down upon the Mount of Olives. And, and as they approached in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, there G, uh, Judas went up and betrayed Jesus and kissed him on the cheek. Even when Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? He still went forward with it. And, and he's, at that point, with that kiss, his name became synonymous with betrayal. But what he did after that, as he gets his 30 pieces of silver, and as we read in Matthew 27, he went and he hung himself. And, and having hung himself, what did he miss? 
Because we know that Matthew 27 is before Luke 24. And he hung himself and he missed everything that came after that. He, he went and he threw the money on the ground and, and he, he betrayed Jesus in this sense. But he missed this picture of this entire scene that led up to the crucifixion of Christ. Before Christ was sentenced, Judas had already killed himself. Before Pilate had finished questioning Jesus, Judas was dead. Before Barabbas was released by Pilate, Judas was dead. Before Jesus was scourged with a whip, Judas was dead. Before the crown of thorns had been placed on the skull of Christ, Judas was dead. Before Jesus was nailed to the cross, Judas was dead. But the real tragedy in all of this, he may have missed all of that, but the real tragedy of all of it, having taken his life and missing all of this, the greatest tragedy was what he missed when Jesus was on the cross. In Luke 23, of the seven final words of Christ, one in particular is he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Judas was already dead by his own hand before he heard those words of Christ. When Jesus uttered the Greek word tetelestai, translated in our language with three words, it is finished. It's better translated paid in full. It's, it's what you'd put on a bill that's finished, paid in full, bam. The mortgage has been paid in full. The penalty has been served, paid in full. He missed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and it's paid in full. Judas missed probably the most important thing. And the greatest tragedy of Judas is that he missed the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what happens when you miss Easter. You miss the greatest gift God has for mankind. That's forgiveness. He's come to forgive you and me. And Judas missed that. Some of you may believe that Judas was so heinous that he couldn't be forgiven and what he'd done had been so horrible. And your theology may hold that. But that, the theology that you've established, lest not you forget... That, that, that book you hold that has established this theology, the Bible itself, it declares in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some consider slowness, but he is patient and long-suffering, wanting that none would perish, but that all would be saved. And the word all in the Greek means all. And the word none in the Greek means none. Jesus loved Judas. And it broke his heart. The Lord doesn't want anyone to perish. And he certainly didn't want Judas to perish. Listen to this. Christ's forgiveness is not dependent on our behavior. And it doesn't even matter whether we deserve it or not. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can be the betrayer of, of the God of the universe, which in a sense we all are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's not dependent on your behavior. 
It doesn't even depend on whether you deserve it or you don't deserve it. Some of you feel like what you've done is so bad, you don't deserve forgiveness. You, you couldn't be more wrong. Because maybe you don't deserve it, but God gave it. And the simple reason is he loves you. Forgiveness from God is dependent only on one thing. Not on you feeling as though you deserve it. Not on what you have or haven't done. Forgiveness is dependent on one thing and one thing only. And that is simply this, the grace of God. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He wants to be reconciled with you. He wants to have that relationship back with you. And, and he's, he's crying out and he's, he's put everything forward. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. We could never earn it. We could never deserve it. He's giving it to us. It's a gift. It's a gift. And I'll tell you what, of, of all the people in the world, the one who needed undeserved love more than anyone was Judas. He needed it. But the saddest part of the story is that Judas came so close to receiving God's forgiveness, but he missed it by that much. There's three things necessary to receive the forgiveness of God. Three things. Judas got two of the three done. That's how close he came. If you want to be reconciled to God, you want to have a right relationship with God, there's three things that are necessary. Number one, you have to acknowledge your sin. Sin. Bullseye, arrow. It's an archer's term. Here's where the arrow is. Here's where perfection is. This is, this is the sin distance. And we have to acknowledge there's none perfect it's the stuff you don't want to talk about. It's the stuff you don't want to admit. It's the stuff you don't want to acknowledge. It's the stuff you'd rather forget, but it's there. And it's affected your relationships with God. It's, reflected your, it's affected your relationships with your family, with your friends, with your enemies, with your, co- with your community. Sin. It's, it's a disease that's just destroying humanity. And, and when we're confronted with our own sin... We're really good at pointing out sin in others. But when we're confronted with our own sin, we can only do one of three things. We can blame others. We can make excuses. Or we can own it. Own it. Well, I, I wouldn't have done what I did had they not done what they did. They were the ones that, they, 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 them, they. Blaming others, making excuses. Well, the reason why I, I wasn't breastfed as a child. <laughs> God's not interested in the first two. He's interested in the third. Own it. God, I, I'm responsible. I did this. Yeah, all that stuff happened, but my actions are this, and I'm responsible for my actions, and I own it. That's what you have to do. Own it. Is that so hard? It would do us a dose of good if all of us could be honest. I did it. I, guilty is charged. I did it. Own it. The second is to be remorseful for it. I don't like that I did it. I don't like what it's done to others what I did. I'm sad by it. It grieves me. 
God, I agree with you too that the selfishness and the self-consumption of things and what has happened and the results and the way it's affected my family, my friends, my, my community, Lord, I, 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 I'm bothered by it. I, I own it and I'm bothered by it. We're at a really good place. We're doing well. But the third is the most important thing. Accept the acceptance of forgiveness offered to us by God. God, I, I did it. I'm, I'm, I'm grieved by it. And you said you'd forgive me of it, would you? Yes. Yes. Forgiveness is tough. You see, Judas came really close. He came really close to having a right relationship with God. He had two of the three. In Matthew 27, he said, I have sinned. I have betrayed an innocent man. He owned it. He owned it. He's doing great. He owned it. He acknowledged his sin. He didn't try to blame anybody else. They were all Galileans. I wasn't. They didn't treat me right. He didn't blame anybody. He owned it. I have betrayed an innocent man. I have sinned. Three words. I have sinned. He owned it. Also, he said, and this was interesting, when Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, the scripture points out that he, had, he was filled with remorse. It grieved him. He, he, he loved the Lord, and, and, and yet he knew he'd let him down. And it grieved him, and he was sickened by it. And here's a picture of why he was sickened by it. He comes and he throws the 30 pieces of silver on the floor, and he goes, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to profit from it. It sickens me. I don't want to go on vacation with it. I don't want to be near it. All I know is in my heart, this, this, is, this is poison to me. I don't want anything to do with it. I blew it. I sinned. I am guilty of it, and I'm sickened by it. And he got two out of the three covered. But the problem is two out of three doesn't cut it when it comes to eternity. I don't know what was holding him back from asking God to forgive him. But I know this. I know what holds me back. Pride. See, to ask someone to forgive you gives them the upper hand. I have sinned against you. I'm wrong. I'm sickened by it. Will you forgive me? Pride and stubbornness is so hard to get people to say, will you forgive me? I marvel at the pride of people who can't say, will you forgive me? I can't live without those words. My life is inundated by failure. I let people down. I am the king of letting people down. Stick around long enough, I will fail you. Some of you are going, amen, brother. <laughs> and I learned early on the power of what King David had learned. That when we're honest with God, he's merciful with us. David always owned it. David always confessed it. And God always forgave it. Why is it so hard? Why do we have such a problem with that? Will you forgive me? 
Do you know what it would do for our community, for our world, if we could reconcile relationships, acknowledge that we failed, be sickened by it, and ask the person we've offended to forgive us? And our pride is such a poison, and it's destroying. We're fighting each other over the stupidest of things. And think about what's happened in the families in our community. All because someone can't utter the words, will you forgive me? What is stopping you? God is ready to embrace you and forgive you. What could possibly hinder you from saying, God, please forgive me? It's pride. And that pride is dangerous. Think about this. Three days after Jesus and Judas died, Jesus rose again, but Judas was still dead. His name was still a stench. After Jesus resurrected, he reappeared to the disciples. And in John 20, he appears in the midst of them. And Judas never heard these words. And listen to them. Judas was dead. He never could say, would you forgive me? And Jesus reappears to the disciples, and there he is in the midst of them. And he says to them, peace be unto you. Ah. Peace was a quality that eluded Judas's life. He seemed to have lived without it, and now it appears that he died without it. Peace. Easter Sunday, everybody looks really good on the exterior. You look like a really good group of folks. But underneath the facade, are you at peace? I sat with somebody this last week in my office who had professed being an agnostic, borderline atheist. And we were having the sweetest conversation. And it's interesting that people don't so much want to know about you. They want you to know about them. And, and I was there to be interviewed, but I was asking questions because I really wanted to know about them. And they were pouring out their life. And I'm listening and I'm intrigued by it. And I, I, I'm moved by it. And, and, and that you come to a conclusion of agnosticism or atheism. And, and then they turned and they asked me the question, why do you believe and I was taken aback by it. I mean, here's a pastor, why do you believe? And I just kind of stumbled over it for a moment, but I just said, well, the best I can describe to you is I've been married 27 years come April 21st. I've got five kids. I'm, I'm a council member and a pastor of the church. I, my life is filled with joy. I have peace. I sleep well at night, not a lot, but when I get to sleep, I sleep well. And I said, I said, all of this has come about by the standards and the directives God has given me in his word that I spend in time in every morning. And it's developed my family. It's given us purpose and meaning and direction and joy. And there's, there's a reason for why we're here. And all of it is just fascinating to me. And, it, and, it, and I find it, it works itself in every area of my life. And, and I, I like being here. And there's joy. And quite honestly, there's a peace. I'm settled. And even trials are joyful. And he gives me peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of the trials. And he guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. And I, and I, I, it's just, I like it. How about you? Do you have peace? And I, I was so blessed by their candid honesty. They just said no. And I said, okay, let's think about this. 
if you're right and I'm wrong and there's no God, I haven't lost anything. I've had a really good life and I'll just step into nothingness in a physical world where there isn't any metaphysical aspects of good and evil and right and wrong and absolutes and, and I just get my pocket full of nickels and my purple robe and take the, you know, the spaceship. It's a whole thing. But, uh, but let's just say I just step into nothingness. What have I got to lose? I left the place better than I found it. I poured into my family's life. I didn't leave any unforgiveness. The, our relationships are strong. Our family enjoys being together. There's not chaos and misery and heartache. And, and people tend to be gravitating towards that. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm pleased. But, but for the sake of argument, I'm right and you're wrong, let's say. That's a scary place to be. There is a God and he loves you. And he's, he's poured everything out to, to, to save you and to forgive you. And you don't have peace. There was a, a man who wrote a song. His name was Felix Powell. And, and the song, a lot of you don't know because it's an older one, but some of the older folks would know it. Uh, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. Pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. I got more where that came from. (laughs) But it was said in that day that it was the most optimistic song that had ever been written in the history of the world. And Felix Powell committed suicide. And I know that hit some families and I don't intend to bring up a sore subject on Easter. But we are talking about Judas. And I want us to see the positive side of what God has to say today. The Greek word for peace, and this is important, the Greek word for peace is simply translated to set at one again. And it deals primarily with broken relationships. And the world could use for a lot more peace. I'm not talking about the Middle East. I'm talking right here in this room. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Broken relationships. All because we can't say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And it's pride. When we're granted forgiveness through the grace of God, then our relationship with God is restored. And this, this, this idea of the Greek word for peace, we're set at one again. We're of a like mind. We're unified. We're built for relationships. We're not supposed to be on an island. We're not supposed to be ostracized and alienated and isolated. God built us for relationship. And listen, if you're all alone, something stinks. But if you learn the words, will you forgive me? A fragrance starts to be developed in your life that draws people. And we're brought to a place where we belong. Uh, Wake up. I'm almost finished. He'll get you back to bed. Judas missed that restoration. He got two of the three, but he missed the third. He was a man torn apart by conflict, and the method, method that he chose to resolve the conflict really wasn't a viable option at all. Suicide doesn't solve problems. It simply creates them. Now, I know that some folks, and, and I, was, I was humbled in my ignorance as I was shared kindly by family members who had lost loved ones through suicide, 
that it, it isn't necessarily always selfish. Sometimes it's chemically induced, and I get that. And I've, I've, as a sheriff's chaplain, I've been around those stories, and they're, they're awful, what the chemicals do to the mind. But there are times where suicide is just plain downright selfish. What you're saying is, I would rather isolate myself and ruin you than seek forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. And as a sheriff's chaplain, I can tell you it solves no problems. It only creates them because I've been left to pick up the mess. Judas didn't damn himself because he betrayed Christ. Let me repeat that. Judas didn't damn himself because he betrayed Christ. You haven't damned yourself because you're a sinner. But this is when Judas damned himself. He refused to set the relationship right with God. Don't mess with that relationship. And that relationship affects every relationship on the, on the face of the earth because when you've been forgiven by God, it's easy to forgive one another. It does an amazing work in your heart. He who has been forgiven much loves much. When you realize the immensity of your sin, you're remorseful for it and you're forgiven for it. All you can have is gratitude in your heart and and you extend that same forgiveness because you've received it and you know how powerful it is. Had Judas sought the forgiveness that only Christ can give, then he would have experienced the peace that only Christ can give. And he never got that. He missed a lot by missing Easter. Easter. He missed the power of forgiveness and the peace of God. He missed all of that because he was unwilling to say, God, forgive me. But I will say this. Everything that Judas missed is available to you right now. I am so tired of the destruction of broken relationships that are in the micro and the macro. And they just manifest themselves up to the highest levels, but it all begins in the local family. And if there's anything that you're going to take from this Easter service, and, and I have to tell you, for 18 years of my life, I was much like many of you in the room. I only came to church on Christmas and Easter. And I, I'm, not, I'm not offended by your presence that you're here once a year. I'm actually thrilled because you don't get bored of my stories. (laughs) And and the, the, the emphasis of this message is for you. Because in some cases, just to get here was a conflict. But it's time that we start receiving forgiveness. It's time that we start receiving forgiveness from God and extending forgiveness to one another. This world desperately needs to be set at one. Judas missed it. He missed Easter. You're here. Everybody's a sinner. There's nobody perfect in the room. We hate what it's done to our families and our relationships. Own it. And then just say, God, forgive me. And that peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And you extend that to one another. Now, this is the last thing. 
the power of the one forgiving is the God of the universe. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Salvation is being forgiven, being cleansed of all unrighteousness, recognizing it, letting God have it. He paid the penalty. It's a done deal. Tetelestai, paid in full. It is finished, but it must be received by faith. You have to ask him. You have to ask him, Lord, would you forgive me? And I'll tell you what his answer will be. I already know it. I know my father's heart. With all my heart, I forgive you. I have loved you this much. And the cool thing is when he forgives you, he forgives your sins past, present, and future. He puts his righteousness on your account. It's kind of like you're writing on a whiteboard with a, a you know, a, one of those erasable markers and he's just going behind you. <laughs> That's Easter. And if you receive it, your name is a fragrance of life. And all of a sudden, you're going to be an instrument of healing, refreshment, and blessing. Or you walk out of here bitter, and your name's a stench. And I don't look forward to officiating your service, because it'll break my heart. Nobody should have a room that doesn't have anybody in it. The reason why I can't ever forget that funeral is because it was so unnecessary. We are meant for relationship. Forgive one another. It's not that hard. Amen? Happy Easter. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we contrast the two lives... The name of Jesus is a, a fragrance diffused, aroma of life. And then Judas, a name no one even wants to use for anything nowadays. One that is synonymous with betrayal. And yet Judas was so close, he knew he was a sinner, and he was sickened by it, but he never asked forgiveness for it. And today, you declare to all who are present within the hearing of my voice, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, you will be forgiven. You will be saved. God, save me. God, forgive me. He does it. He can't wait. The gift of Easter. Judas missed it, but everyone here today is present for it. And may their lives be a pleasant fragrance of forgiveness for your glory as they receive it and they extend it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's stand and close with a song of praise.